Well, good morning, Redeemer. We're glad that you can join us for worship this morning. And if you are visiting with us, we want to give you a very special welcome. Uh, We'd love to get to know you better. And uh, one of the ways that we do that is we would just encourage you to text the word welcome to the number that's on the screen. It just helps us to know that you were with us and try to connect with you during the week. Uh, But while you're here, uh, right after the service, we have a coffee time. We'd love to connect with you at that time, too. Just introduce yourself uh, to a few people so you can, uh, uh, we can know that you were with us and and, uh, get to know you a little bit better. Uh, As we begin this morning, just a few announcements. Uh, We do have our uh, regular Sunday school classes today, and uh, the list of those are in in your bulletin. You can see the the ones uh, age-oriented for children and adults. And then uh, coming up uh, April 7, uh, we have a combined uh, Good Friday service uh, combined with uh, Harvest and Cedar. And so we'll be hosting uh, three churches for that Good Friday service. So get here early. I'll just recommend that. Uh, drive one car, not four, as um, some families can do when you have that many drivers. So uh, just all pile into one, and uh, we're going to have a very, very packed house, so just be mindful of that. And there's also an opportunity to be part of the choir uh, for that uh, event as well, uh, for both Good Friday and for Easter. There's information in the bulletin about that. And then, uh, as we've been mentioning, this is our March for Missions. Uh, In your boxes are the uh, prayer guide uh, for that five-minute prayer challenge, and we just encourage you to uh, continue on with that. If you uh, haven't done it the last couple weeks, uh, just pick up with it this week and be a part of uh, that opportunity to bless our missionaries with uh, regular prayer uh, of a supporting church, not just financially, but also with what they would say. I, I can just speak for them. They would say, we need your prayers even, not, you know, they need, we need your money too because they need to eat, but they need their prayers a lot because of the hard work that they're doing on the mission field. Uh, and then also this Saturday, we have our men's breakfast. It will be uh, here at Redeemer at 7.30. And so I uh, hope that each of you gentlemen can be here for that and a great time of fellowship around the table uh, with your brothers uh, and a hot meal. And I uh, hope we can enjoy that uh, together. Well, let's take this moment now and uh, pause to prepare our hearts as we come before our holy God. I think based on each one of our experiences, you can agree that this world is full of disappointment. And yet we come to a God who exceeds our expectations, sometimes in ways we're not quite ready for, ways that we don't expect, and yet it is so much better than what we could have come up with in his grand plan. And so uh, he is the only one who can satisfy our heart as Uh, The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 22. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. 
Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Let us with hearts and voices stand to sing together.
Lord, we come to you with hearts so grateful that we have opportunity to sing out and to praise you and to acknowledge your greatness among all of creation, Lord. You have spoke this universe into existence, that we come before an all-powerful God, but one that also knows all things, knows our very hearts, and we would ask that you would draw us near to yourself. Lord, in the ways that we are tempted to turn aside to the right and to the left and to be mindful of all the other things that burden our lives, Lord, that you would unburden us and help us to be focused upon what you have for us this day as we draw near to you, that your spirit would accomplish the great work that you planned even before the foundation of the world for this very hour. We pray it for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. seated. Well, as we think of the excellent greatness uh, of the Lord's name, He connects His name to His law. The, the law is the demonstration of the very character of our God. And so we come to our series in our Ten Commandments and trying to understand what uh, this summary commandment, what it means is it gets unpacked throughout all of Scripture. And uh, so we have been uh, depending upon the Westminster Divines to help us with some of that unpacking with our confession using the larger catechism. 
Uh, but we are on the fourth commandment. And uh, I'm going to read that commandment, and then we're going to focus on uh, what are the sins forbidden in that command. Last week we looked at what is required, right? So there's always a positive and a negative uh, in the way that the uh, confession articulates uh, our response to God's commands. And so let the Lord uh, use this to guide uh, your heart and to prepare you as you confess your sins to the Lord. This is the Word of God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So let us join our voices together as we confess the uh, answer to our question, what are the sins forbidden in the fourth commandment? The sins forbidden in the fourth commandment are all omissions of the duties required, all careless, negligent, and unprofitable performing of them, and being weary of them, all profaning the day by idleness, and doing that which is itself sinful, and by all needless works, words, and thoughts about our worldly employments and recreations. So let's take this moment now as you think through what are the ways that um, you have fallen short, you've crossed over that line that the Lord has set, the boundary that he's put up uh, in our life to keep us safe, because he's designed us, our bodies, for rest. Right? It's not, we can't just keep our foot on the throttle the whole time and assume that there's not going to be consequences uh, to that. And so he loves us and he wants us to take these times uh, to pause and to rest. So let us confess the ways uh, that we fall short of this command in silent prayer. Heavenly Father, as we think about the pace of our world and the fact that it seems that with technology and with all the different things that happen, that things just tend to get faster and faster and faster, and how much our culture can influence our thinking, our priorities, our behavior. And how it can go right against what you have called us to do. You are the one who sets the appropriate pace for our lives. We thank you that you have called us to stop. That you've called us to pause and to rest and to be mindful of all the things that you have done. And as we reflect on our week, Lord, there are things that happen that we did not want to happen. Some of it because we sinned, and yet the consequences came upon us. Some of it just because we live in a fallen world, and 
these things happen. But other things that we can just rejoice in, things that you have accomplished that we never expected, things that were just the day-to-day normal things that you did work in and through us and in our families. And for all, Lord, we are grateful that you are at work, that we can trace your hand in it. Thank you for time to pause, to reflect, even as you did upon your own work, calling it not just good, but very good. And though we don't always see the very goodness of your work in our lives, we know because you've told us that you were at work for what is very good in us to make us more like Jesus. We thank you for your love and for your care and for drawing us to yourself this morning. We ask that you forgive us for these sins in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. The Lord gives to us this promise of pardon from Psalm 130, simply saying, And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Not some, not most, not the really bad ones. He just simply said, all. Well, we rejoice in that promise and the uh, demonstration, uh, the sign of that promise, even in baptism, as Pastor Jeff comes to lead us. Before I invite the bakers to come forward, I want to explain a minute what we're going to do. Because this is not just a ceremony or something that we do because it's sort of interesting or nice. It's the routine. We do this because it is commanded by our God. The Lord Jesus instituted baptism as a covenant sign and seal for his church. He uses it not only for the solemn administration of the person, or the solid admission rather, of the person who is baptized into the visible church but also to depict and to confirm his engrafting of that person into himself and his including of that person in the covenant of grace. The Lord uses baptism to portray to us that we and our children, although conceived and born in sin, are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. He uses it to witness and to seal to us the remission of sins and the bestowal of all the gifts of salvation through union with Christ. Baptism with water signifies and seals cleansing from sin by the blood and spirit of Christ, together with our death unto sin and our resurrection unto newness of life by virtue of the death and resurrection of Christ. The time of the outward application of the, of the sign does not necessarily coincide, coincide with the inward work of the Holy Spirit which the sign represents and seals to us. Because these gifts of salvation are the gracious provision of the triune God who is pleased to claim us as his very own, we are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In our baptism, the Lord puts his name on us, claims us as his own, and summons us to assume the obligations of the covenant. He also calls us to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, to renounce the devil, the world, and our flesh, and to walk humbly with our God in devotion to his commandments. Now, when the bakers bring Everly forward, I want to remind you that what what is happening up here is not just for them, it's also for us as a congregation. And it is two particular applications to us as a body. The first is that it reminds us, if we have been baptized, 
of our call to live in faithfulness after our Savior. Christ has put his name on you and claims you as well. He calls you to be repentant for your uh, sin against your covenant God, to confess your faith before men, and to live in newness of life to God who sealed his covenant with you by the blood of his own Son. That's what God has said to you in your baptism. And as you watch this covenant sign being administered, you are also called to walk in faithfulness before this God. I do want to say just a note about the fact that we're baptizing an infant this morning. As I noted just a moment ago, this form says that the sign may not be, it may be applied at a different time than the reality of that sign being worked in the heart of the person who receives it. And that's true. But there are promises in the Word of God about His desire and His willingness, His promise to bring the reality of that sign to bear on the one who receives that sign. The covenant is the same in essence in both the Old and New Testaments. The grace of God for the consolation of believers is even more fully manifested in the New Testament. Thus, rather than rescinding the covenant promise to believers and to their offspring that is made to Abraham and his offspring in the Old Testament, God reaffirms that promise in the New. He says in Acts 2, the promise is to you and to your children. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your house, in Acts 16. And he affirms that even if one parent is a believer, the children are holy to the Lord in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. Moreover, our Savior admitted little children into his presence, embraced them and blessed them, and said, of such is the kingdom of God. And so in the New Testament, no less than the Old, the children of the believers have an interest in the covenant and a right to the covenant sign and to the outward privileges of the covenant people, the church. In the New Testament, baptism has replaced circumcision as the covenant sign. Therefore, by the covenant sign of baptism, the children of believers are to be distinguished from the world and solemnly admitted into the visible church. Now, that is a long explanation simply to say this. We're doing this from the command of Christ. It's not just a ritual. It is a sacrament. Everly is set aside to the Lord by this sacrament, and she is considered part of the visible church as this covenant sign is administered to her. And so I want to ask her parents to come forward because there are four questions to ask them before she receives the water. Tom and Cassie, the Lord has been very kind to you in giving you another child. You can't see this, but she's smiling. (laughs) And part of the way that God will keep his covenant promises to her, both your children, is through the work that you will do. You are the primary agents God has given to be a blessing of the Lord to your daughters. And there are four questions you're asked to affirm. And if you can just say, we do, after each one, if you agree. Do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are subject to condemnation, they are holy in Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace 
and his children of the covenant are to be baptized. Second, do you promise to teach diligently to your daughter the principles of our holy Christian faith as revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and summarized in the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church? Third, do you promise to pray with and for Everly and to set an example of piety and godliness before her? And finally, do you promise to endeavor by all the means that God has appointed to bring Everly up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to encourage her, to appropriate for herself the blessings and to fulfill the obligations of the covenant of grace? Praise the Lord. Now, some of you will remember that we have prayed for Everly as well as for her mom when she was in accident when Everly was still in womb. And every time I see Everly, I'm reminded not only that God is a covenant God, which is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Just look at your children a minute and thank the Lord for them. But we see a special demonstration of God's care and his love for his people in the life of this little girl. And so we set her aside to the Lord We recognize that she belongs to him and that his love for her is even greater than the love of her parents. Everly Joy Baker, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you join me in praying? Holy Father, as we watch the water being placed in Everly's head, we are taught over and over that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from the stain and the guilt of our sin. And Lord, we are thankful that you've made that promise to us and to our children. It is not only for adults, but even the smallest among us that your grace can reach and transform and give new life. And we pray for Tom and Cassie as they raise their daughters, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them consistency, you give them courage, and most of all, that their daughters would see in them a love for Jesus Christ. We pray for us as a congregation that we would be a support and a care to them, that we would hold them up before your throne, and that at every moment they would know our kindness and our love for them, that they would know that they are not just a family among many families in this world, but they're a family that belongs to the covenant people, this church. And Father, so we pray that you would hear and answer this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to ask you as a congregation to stand with me if you're a member of this church because there's also a promise that you make. Everly is baptized into Christ and has become a member of this visible church. And the whole congregation is obligated to love her and receive her as a member of the body of Christ. The Bible says we were all baptized by one spirit into one body and therefore are members of one another. 
Christ claims this little child as his own and calls you to receive her in love and commitment. Therefore, you're asked to commit before God himself the following. I'm going to read it and ask you to say together, we do. Do you promise to assist the bakers in the raising of Everly? Do you promise to assist them in the raising of Everly in the Christian nurture of the Christian faith by godly example, prayer, and encouragement in this church? If you do, please say, we do. Okay, thank you. You may be seated, and you may as well. We are thankful for this child that God has given to this family and to this church. And we pray for the greatest blessing of God's kindness to this family. And we pray that, their, that her mom and dad and her entire family, grandpa and grandma, siblings, uncles and aunts, would also have the godly example necessary to encourage her as she walks after the Lord. Would you sing with me as we consider this baptism, this song, He Will Keep You, and will you stand as we sing? Please join me in a prayer of thanksgiving. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning to bring you our thanks. Thank you for the ways you have cared and provided for us in this past week. 
We see you your power clearly displayed in the weather and the changing of the seasons and know that you are the God of the universe. And yet you care for each one of us. What a comfort it is to us to know that no matter what is going on in our lives, whether we're struggling this morning or celebrating, you know and fully understand what we're going through. And you are in control of all things, working them for your glory and our good. Thank you, Lord, for this church, for the many people who give of their time and resources in service of you here. Thank you for our pastors and leadership who seek to guide us in truth and point us to Christ. We thank you most of all that you came to this earth through Jesus, who took on human body, and through his perfect life and death on the cross and resurrection, fully paid for our sins and made us pure and clean in your sight. Be with Pastor Jeff this morning as he brings us your word. Give him boldness to present the truth with clarity of mind and word. Open our hearts through the Holy Spirit that we may hear and understand. Bless the offering that we take now. May we give freely with a cheerful heart. And bless the deacons. May they be wise stewards of your resources. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, the psalmist says to us, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, or the children of one's youth. 
We are so grateful this morning to be in a building with others of all ages, from the very youngest, newborns, through those who are, who are older. We are glad that your covenant promises have meant that from generation to generation there are those who fear you. And on a day like this, that is a day in which we recognize very clearly the blessing of children, we want to begin this prayer by thanking you for your blessing. Sometimes as parents we can be frustrated with our children. Maybe already this morning we have been. They couldn't find their shoes or they spilled in their clothes. Or we didn't have a very good ride to church this morning. There are a lot of reasons in human relationships, including the relationships between parent and children. There are many reasons why we may be frustrated or even irritated. But Lord, when we come before you and we see the grand the grand scope of the way that you work in this world, we cannot help but stop for a moment and say, we see, Lord, that you are good and that children are a blessing. They are part of the way in which the reality of Christ's kingdom rule is coming into this world. And we acknowledge that children are good, even in opposition to a culture that often says, our lives are our own, And if children are an encumbrance to you, why would you have them? Lord, but we have confessed that our lives are not our own. They belong to Jesus Christ. And part of the real giving up of our lives may be as parents that we willingly sacrifice for the sake of our children. That sacrifice is a response to the kingdom call of our Savior to deny ourselves. And we pray as parents we would do that willingly. We pray for Tom and Cassie, especially this morning, as they seek to raise Amalia and Everly to know you and to follow you. We are so grateful that they belong to a family in which they have parents and grandparents and other family members who support and care for them. We pray for her little heart, for Everly's little heart, that as she grows, she would embrace you as Savior and Lord, that she would grow up coming to worship you going to Sunday school classes and having the joy of hearing about Jesus in those classes, of learning how to pray and how to walk before you. We are so grateful, Lord, to belong to this community where those things happen. And we pray also for each one of our children, not only for the bakers today, but for us as parents as a whole. We pray that the promises that we have made in baptism, the promises that have been laid upon us, would be realized by your Spirit. That these would not be empty words that are simply spoken into the air, but we'd embrace those promises. I pray for those children this morning who are listening, who have not come to that point of embracing faith in Jesus Christ for themselves. Use this sacrament and the preaching of your word this morning to bring them to understand and to embrace Jesus Christ as their own. We pray also for children this morning who hear and have heard that call in the past and have wandered away from you. Maybe some of us here this morning are struggling with that. Is the Christian faith true? Is it something to be believed in? Father, again, use your word, your spirit, confirmed by the sacrament to show us if we are doubters, maybe skeptical of the Christian faith, that this is more than just a routine. It's more than just something we believe in because we happen to belong to this subset of our culture, 
but we believe these things because they are transcendently true. And we also pray this morning for those of us who have children. Not only do we pray for those of us who have children who have wandered away, we pray also for some of us who would like to have children. Maybe we're not even married, or maybe we're married and that is not something you've given us. We pray that you would also give us patience. That you would give us real joy for those who have been given that gift. And that you would also comfort and heal our hearts. We even pray for those this morning who don't have parents. We pray for children in our culture, in our community, who are not raised in safe homes, maybe even have been taken from their homes. We thank you for those in our congregation who foster, for those who are willing to adopt, maybe even have the courage to give up a child for adoption. Lord, we pray for them as well this morning. You are the God who has promised to care for our children and to care for those who are weak, those who are the hurt. And we pray that within the body of Christ, our culture would see that we are Christians by the love that we have not only for each other, but the love we have for those around us. Father, in order for us to follow after you, we need your help. And we pray that not only for our children and our families this morning. We also pray for those who are on our prayer list. We pray for Earl that you would bring him home soon and give him recovery. We pray the same for Joyce. She is at home, but Lord, she needs your help. And we pray that you would give it to her, that she could be strong and healthy again. We pray for Steve Platt. Thank you for bringing him through his surgery safely, and we ask for continued recovery. We pray for Aaron Gabler that you would heal his hand. We pray for Louise Campheis. We pray, Lord, that you would give her strength and relieve her pain. We pray for Richard Bauma. Thank you, Lord, for the treatments he has received, and we pray that soon he would be able to return to worship. We pray for Mickey Kike, that you would also be a comfort there. We pray for Zach Francois, that you would keep him from harm and that you would still the raging of the society around him. We pray for Clarice Lorup, that you would be a comfort to her, Lord, and you would give wisdom to the doctors about how to proceed. And we pray for our precious sister Gail Stahl as well, that you would be very close to her. Father, these are all people that we love and care for, but they belong to you, as we have said, even more than to us. And we're thankful for that. Because we find ourselves limited in our ability to care for those who are hurting as well as our children. But you are the God of infinite power. Even when we feel as though we are failing, we don't have the strength to go on. Your strength is greater than ours. In fact, the Apostle Paul said that your strength is magnified in our weakness. So keep us from being boastful and proud. Instead, along with the Apostle, may we glory in our weakness that Christ would be magnified. We ask that you would hear and answer these prayers, Lord, not because they are offered perfectly, or every word is formed and sentences constructed in the way that is the most brilliant. Father, we do not pray to you 
in order to perform a duty, we pray to you because you are almighty, infinitely powerful, kind, and good to us. And so we can bring these things to you in Jesus' precious name, knowing that you will hear and answer us. Amen. This morning we'll turn in our Bibles again to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we have been hearing sermons from the Gospel of John, and this is really the third in a three-part mini-portion of John, because this morning we're going to hear about what the breaking of bread for 5,000, the multiplying of that bread, what that meant about Jesus himself. And I'll explain to you, if you haven't been here every Sunday, how this passage unfolds and will continue in it next Sunday. But this morning we pick up what Jesus is saying in verse 22 of John chapter 6, and I'll be reading through verse 35. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 22, reading through verse 35, hear the word of God. And the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal." Then they said to him, what, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to, him, to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of God. May he bless it this morning. I'm wondering if you have had that feeling, and I know I will date myself a little bit in terms of age when I ask you this question. Have you ever had that feeling when you're coming out of the grocery store, you're walking through the parking lot, and you can't find your car? And as you've wandered up one aisle and then a second... 
looking for your car, you suddenly remember that you didn't drive your own car there. You took your wife's car and you just walked past it. (laughs) The whole time walking up and down those two aisles, you were looking for the wrong thing. And I'm wondering this morning if some of us have been looking for the wrong thing for a long time. If you have, and I would tell to you, say to you, that the Jews in this passage have been doing exactly that. They have been looking for the wrong thing for a long time, so that when the real thing showed up before them, they did not recognize Jesus for who he was. Have you been looking for the wrong thing for a long time? If that's you, this morning's passage is meant to point you to the right place. And I'm even going to tell you how to find the right thing. The right thing that you are looking for is found between what you want and what you need. We may look at our lives and see many things that we want and we pursue. But what happens in this portion of John chapter 6 is rather than giving us what we want, Jesus says, I am the one that you need. I want to divide this passage into two parts. The first is what you want, or maybe I can say what you're seeking, what you're working for. I am well aware that this passage is not the easiest to understand. In fact, this part of John, from John chapter 6, verse 22, through the end of the chapter, is some of the more difficult words that Jesus says. People ask him one question, and he answers in a way that you think is even answering the question that is being asked. I'm going to explain that to you. And the answer that he gives, you think, well, what does that mean? If you read that this morning, if you've read that many times in your Bible, and you've thought, I do not understand really what Jesus is saying, by God's grace, I hope this morning to explain it to you some, so that rather than leaving here thinking, I still don't get it, You can understand not only what Jesus is saying, but also why it is so incredibly significant. Let me start, as I said again, with what you want. That comes in verses 22 through 28. You will not be able to understand what Jesus is explaining in these verses unless you look back to the beginning of the chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, we read that Jesus fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish, and the crowds are so impressed with what Jesus is able to do that the end of that section says they want to take Jesus by force and make him king. I said it last week, and I'll say it again this morning, They saw Jesus as the answer to their problems. Jesus, you're amazing, you're spectacular, you're wonderful. You can do everything that we need. You turned a few loaves and fish into bread for 5,000. What is the end of what you're able to provide for us? If you can multiply food, you certainly can help us with our political problems. You can cast off the Romans and give us freedom again. That's in the mind of the people who saw Jesus divide the bread. But then Jesus left. (laughs) If you can imagine, the crowds are saying, we want to make you king. Jesus disappears. And we find that Jesus goes alone into the mountain to pray. 
And while Jesus is praying, his disciples row three to four miles into the Sea of Galilee. A storm comes up. And as I explained last Sunday, they see Jesus walking across the sea on the water. And the Bible says they saw him and they were afraid. The point that I made to you last Sunday, and then I'm going to stop saying last Sunday and the Sunday before I move to this morning's passage. The point I made to you last Sunday is that the fear of God is meant to eclipse the fear of everything else. When you have a fear of God that recognizes who God really is, it eclipses everything else in life. But here's the beauty of the fear of God. It is not a fear of God where you shirk back. Because of your lack, because you are finite and unholy, know in the presence of God because of Jesus Christ, the fear of God that eclipses every other fear, in Jesus Christ you're welcomed. Instead of shirking back, you run to this Jesus because he says, do not be afraid. It's me. It's I. Here I am. Come. So now, this morning, we read in these verses that the crowds get into their boats to try to find Jesus. They haven't seen what Jesus did on the water, and they're still stuck at, where's Jesus? We need his help. Here's someone we need to make king to help us. And when they find him, in verse 25, they ask him when he arrived on the other side. It sounds like a timing question. I would suggest to you it's not really it's sort of like a question for information that happens when you feel like a friend has stood you up for a lunch date. You say, where have you been? When did you get here? What you're really asking is, why in the world am I waiting here for you? That's what the crowd is asking Jesus. Jesus, we need you. We want you. Why did you come here? Aren't you paying attention to what we want? I was looking and I was not finding you. They are looking for Jesus because they need him. They want to cling to him for what he is able to do for them. And Jesus calls out that need in verse 26. He says, you are seeking me because I am able to fill your stomach with food. And you are hoping I can do so much more for you. Do not work, do not seek for what you can fill, what can fill your stomachs, but for the food that lasts forever. Now notice two things about what Jesus says to these people in the crowd who comes to him. Jesus first draws this obvious distinction between two kinds of food. There is the food that perishes, the kind of food that if you leave the cheese on the counter, eventually it's going to grow mold. And unless it's very good cheese, you're going to throw that cheese out. If you forgot the milk on the counter this morning, by the time you come home, I doubt anyone in your family is going to want to drink that milk. Food perishes. It spoils. Jesus is saying that's the way with food. Even further, he means the food that goes into our stomachs only lasts for a certain amount of time. We get nutrients from it, and then it's expelled. That food doesn't last forever. It can't sustain us forever. The food is temporary, not permanent. It helps for a time, but not forever. And he says, compared to that food, there is a food that I can give you that lasts forever. 
And I want you to think in those terms. You see how Jesus is challenging exactly the kind of thing that they wanted for him, from him. They wanted Jesus for what he could do for them. Give us more food. Give us political freedom. Give us what we need. And Jesus says, oh, listen to this. I've come to give you so much more. Lift up your eyes a little bit. Look further. Think bigger. I'm able to do far more. The second thing I want you to notice is the question they ask him in verse 28. They ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They're concerned about the work that Jesus can do. Jesus has said, do not work, do not seek for the food that perishes, but seek for the food that lasts forever. And they return and say, well, what are we supposed to be working for? What are the works we're supposed to be doing? Their question assumes something very important. They're assuming the reason is correcting Jesus is correcting them is because they haven't figured out work they're supposed to be doing. In other words, they're working the wrong sort of work. But Jesus is telling them they're missing the point badly. Instead of looking to the one that God provides, they ask what work they're supposed to be doing. They're focused on Jesus, we want you to provide for us. We need something that will sustain us. And if you're challenging that, what we're asking you is what are we supposed to do about it? What are we supposed to do? So that what Jesus is telling them is very simple. He says you're looking for the wrong thing to sustain you and you assume what sustains you is something that you must work for. That it depends on you. Do you hear both of those things? You're assuming that you need a certain thing to sustain you. And the thing that sustains you is what you can do. Now if you go back into John chapter 6, you think to yourself, well, these were crowds. They definitely needed food. They're trying to figure out who Jesus is. Maybe their questions make some sense. I want to ask you this morning the two-part question that Jesus is posing to these crowds. What are you looking for to sustain you? What are you looking for to sustain you? I can think of all kinds of things that we look to sustain us. Our vacations lessen 10 days in the rearview mirror. <laughs> And I can tell you that having a break is a very sustaining activity. Maybe you look at very simple things like the crowd, which is not necessarily wrong. You need food to sustain you and you're working hard for all the things that you need in life. Maybe you think about the people around you. And the necessity of those people to sustain you. Maybe you're thinking more globally. We need a culture, a society that's strong in order for my life to be sustained. Whatever it is that you think that you need in order to be taken care of. For things to be right. That's a thing that we look to to sustain us. And the second part of the question that Jesus asked is, how do you plan to get what sustains you? I am incredibly struck as I look at John chapter 6 with how simple the Jews thought that question could be answered. 
How do you get what will sustain you? The Jews answered, well, what are we supposed to do? We need to work for it. That's what we need to do. It seemed obvious to them. If we need something for ourselves, what are we going to do? We're going to work for it. And I would guess that's what every single one of us is tempted to believe. Whatever I need to sustain my life, I need to work for it. I need to try hard. I need to keep going. That's really the simple formula for life. What do I need and how do I work for it? What we really want is the formula about how we can work at the right things to get what we need. But the second part of this passage is not about what they want, it's what Jesus gives, what they really need. Jesus does not leave them and us in that position. And there's a very good reason why he does not leave them with that formula, working hard to get what will sustain us. The reason Jesus is going to challenge that formula is because it is entirely inadequate to answer the questions of life. It is not as though there isn't any truth to it. There is. It's just a misspoken, there is a misspoken assumption it's the whole answer. Or that you can give that answer without something far more foundational. If you're convinced this morning that the formula to life is to work at the right things to get what you need, I'm going to predict that there are significant times in your life that you're going to be frustrated with how life treats you and you will be thoroughly disappointed when you die. Because what Jesus is going to challenge them and he challenges us is with a question, it's not what you are seeking, it is what God is giving. And that's what comes next. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered them in response to the question, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. There are three key ideas that are initiated here in verse 29. Verse 29 is the first. He responds to their question by saying, this is the work of God, that you believe in, who, in him whom he has sent. There's something very subtle that happens here that I want to note to you. They ask about the works of God. What are they supposed to be doing to be doing the works of God, the things that are approved by Him? Jesus responds by talking about a work singular. There is one work of God that matters. Further, and this is a bit harder to see, He switches who is doing the work. They have asked, what works of God do we need to do? And Jesus switches to a singular work, not that they do, but that God does. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now maybe that seems like a subtle shift. You might even wonder, is that exactly what Jesus intends? I can tell you confidently it is. Notice he switches from what you're supposed to do to what God has done. From the works that we're supposed to do to the work that God has done. And he says that singular work enables us to believe in him whom he has sent. 
The that in that phrase, verse 29, comes sort of like this. This is a singular work that God has done so that, in order that, you might believe in the one whom God has sent. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? Now just think for a moment. He is switching the whole formula of life from what are we going to do to sustain us to what God gives. The second thing I want you to notice is in verse 32. After Jesus tells them this amazing truth, they challenge him. They ask, are you really saying that you are the one whom God has sent? Are you the one who has come from God? If that's what you're saying, we need a sign. The logic is very simple as it unfolds in these verses. If the prophet Moses had the sign of bread from heaven, then what sign can you give if you're really the Messiah? Moses gave us bread from heaven. What sign do you give? How can you prove that you are the Messiah? And in verse 32, Jesus challenges their notion that it was Moses who gave them bread from heaven. It wasn't Moses, he said. It was my Father who gave you bread from heaven. And this is the same Father who's now giving you a better bread, a true bread from heaven. He switches the formula of their question from what can they do in order to get what sustains them to what God provides with a proof That if in the Old Testament God gave the Israelites bread from heaven, in the New Testament, God is giving them someone even better from heaven. He is giving the one who's standing in front of them, which leads us to verse 35. The third thing I want you to notice in the second half of the passage, where Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Maybe this morning as you're listening to me, you say, Pastor, I hear you giving a lot of explanation about these verses. I have, and it feels rather necessary to give that explanation. It's not an easy passage to explain. In fact, I would be surprised sometimes if you're reading this, if you don't end and you're like, I don't know what Jesus is trying to tell us. Maybe you're the only person who, when you read your Bible, says that. I occasionally ask the same question. I don't understand what Jesus is trying to say. But if you follow along with the interaction between Jesus and these people in the crowd, you come away with a fundamental impression that Jesus is turning their attention away From first, a misunderstanding who he is, that is, the one who can release them from the Romans, give them the bread that they need to eat. He is challenging them to think much deeper about who he is. And then they switch the question to ask, well, what are the things that we need to do in order to be sustained? And Jesus, again, switches the question. And he says, it's not about what you do in order to be sustained. It is what God has done for you. 
And then they ask him, well, how do we know that you're giving us the right answer? How do we know that we're supposed to look to your words? Jesus says, you know, that bread from heaven that came from Moses, there's a better bread from heaven in front of you. And then he says those powerful words, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This whole passage has been building to verse 35. He has been laying before them the clarity of who he is. He is saying through all the things that you may struggle and strive for in life, look to the one who's able to provide for you. Believe in the one who can give you what sustains your life now and for eternity. And you'll notice in verse 35, he pulls us as readers forward from John chapter 4. The woman at the well who says, give me that water that I shall never thirst. Jesus now says, that which you are seeking, whether it's the bread that fills you for eternity or the water that quenches your thirst forever, that's found in me. That's who I am. I am the bread of life. Now you may ask me, Pastor, what does that mean? Are you telling me that I should not work hard? I shouldn't strive to provide for my family? I shouldn't go to school and work to get good grades? I shouldn't manage my life well? Is that what you're trying to tell me? In a sense, yes. That's exactly right. Because if you do all those things... Absent the bread of life and the water that never thirsts, your life is going to be empty. You'll be searching and searching and searching, and you'll never find what you're looking for. You'll be asking the wrong question about life. You'll be asking, what do I need to add to my life? What do I need to pursue in order to find what I'm looking for? And the answer is, you won't find it. You really won't. But if Jesus is the one who sustains you, if He is the bread of life, if He is the water that quenches your thirst for eternity, you can go to work. You can raise your family. You can study hard. You can manage life. Be a good citizen. Not hoping that those things will complete you, but doing them from the one who sustains you. You'll be drawing on the reservoir of Almighty God, the God who walks on water, the one that we must see in order that the things that we would ordinarily fear are eclipsed by the welcoming Almighty God, Jesus Christ. I'm not suggesting to you that you don't wash clothes or that you don't buy groceries, or you don't manage your 401k as miserable as that may feel right now. I'm not suggesting any of that. I'm only telling you, or maybe I shouldn't say only, maybe I should say it is my joy to tell you, if you strive for all of that apart from Jesus Christ, you are in the same position as the crowds. But if you do all of that having Jesus Christ, 
then even in the most difficult places of life, those places that many of you are facing, you can find peace. Because the Jesus who says, I am the bread of life, I am the water that quenches your thirst for eternity, is not absent all of those struggles and strains and difficulties. No, the God who sustains you is the God who is working in you and in your life to show your utter need for Him and to show His power to bring you through. I am impressed as we've been working through John how often John works to answer the basic question that hangs above this whole gospel. Do you remember what that question was? There are four gospels that are given to us in the Bible, each of them unique, all of them complementary, giving us a full picture of who Jesus is. What stands about the Gospel of John is this big question. Who is Jesus, comma, why should I feel compelled to believe in him? And the answer that comes in this section of John chapter 6 is very simple. Who is this Jesus that I should feel compelled to believe in him? Jesus is the one who, unlike anything or anyone else in life, can sustain you now and for eternity. That's why you should believe in Him. Amen. Father, I would be surprised if the words that come from John chapter 6 do not strike us sometimes as sort of startling because they challenge the basic notion that we have in life that life is what we make it to be if we make good choices if we cross our t's and dot our i's if we make sure we don't do anything foolish then life should turn out well for us but if some of us have been trying that over and over again And we've reached that point where we say, I see it's not working. Then replace that desire to look to what we can do to sustain ourselves. To the one who is actually able to sustain us. The one who can give us life. A life that never ends. A bread that sustains us. Father, it is true that the work that you've called us to do above any other work is a simple resting and relying in Jesus Christ. That is what it means for us to follow him. Forgive us for all the ways in which we give lip service to that truth and yet we don't really pursue it. Where we just assume that to be true and then we go on to struggle and strive in all of life. Replace that today on this day of rest with a genuine resting in our Savior. That instead of seeking and looking in all those other places, wandering up and down the aisles of life, always looking for something else, we would find genuine peace on our Savior. Lord, would you grant this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to sing, Behold the Wondrous Mystery.
after the service is finished, I'm going to ask the bakers to come with me to the back so you can give them your congratulations, encouragement. And then there will be Sunday school classes, as was noted at the beginning. If you are interested in sermon discussion, we'll meet back in this room at quarter after 11. Receive this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.